Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I preach your word to your people. Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom to be able to handle difficult topics well. Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that the words that I speak are not my own but yours. Lord, I pray with you, that you would be with the members of this church, those who are listening to this right now, that you would transform their hearts so that the words that I speak and the words that they hear all conform to your will. Lord, we ask for this supernatural transformation, and we ask for it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to go ahead and touch those two middle rails that we're not supposed to touch, religion and politics. So y'all pray for me. I was scrolling through my news feed this week, and I came across an interesting article. I generally don't like basketball like it all, and so I really don't like women's basketball, not because I don't like women's basketball players, but because I don't like any basketball. But I came across an article that talked about uh, Brittany Griner, who was a, uh, a WNBA superstar uh, who had gone to Russia and had been um, arrested on a drugs violation there. Some people say it was trumped up, other people say it wasn't, whatever. What was notable about her was the fact that she had been very open and ostentatious in her criticism of the United States. She was one of the athletes that would routinely sit, not stand up for the national anthem, didn't really have any uh, kind of use for the American flag or the United States as a nation, uh, and she based that on her interpretation of history and, and how she viewed things. But the article was about how at the most recent WNBA game that she was a part of, they played the national anthem, and she stood up through the whole thing. And she said that having been in a Russian prison, her view of the United States had changed, that she was more appreciative of the nation. And, and it's funny how, I think there was, a, there was a saying, you know, our country is the worst, except for all the other countries out there. Like, we can look at the problems in our own nation, and we can, and especially as Christians, that we can watch as our nation kind of uh, stumbles from from failure to failure, we can, we can look at all of the moral failures and all the problems that we have, and we can begin to wring our hands and talk about how bad our country is until you go outside of the United States. And you're like, oh, 
It ain't that bad. There's just something about getting off, you know, whenever I go through customs, generally it's Intercontinental Airport, right? You get off the airport, you go through there, and you go through this, there's this huge hall, and everybody's standing in line, and everybody's jet lagged, and you got, your, you got your bag, you're like, oh, please, I don't want to have to go through customs, I hope they don't pull me inside for secondary, and all this kind of stuff, and you look up, and there's this huge American flag, and it's this well-lit blue and white room, you're like, oh, okay, I'm back in America. You step across that line, you're like, all right, I'm home. There's just something about it. As Christians, we are going to increasingly be dealing with the issues within our nation. As our nation grows more and more opposed to our values and our philosophies and our worldviews, we will increasingly have to deal with the question of how do we interact with a nation that has turned its back on the gospel? How do we live well within a nation that many of us feel is dying? How do we live well in a dying world? Because see, as Christians, we don't have the option of running away. We, we don't have the option of escaping from the world that we live in. I have some friends and their, their biggest hope and wish and desire is to one day like move to Alaska and go and live in a little cabin out in the woods and farm for themselves and, and just you know, provide for themselves. And while that is incredibly not what my life, I want my life to be, there is this attractive element there where you don't have to mess with any of the garbage around you. You don't have to worry about being accosted by homeless people on the subway and then going to jail for manslaughter. You don't have to deal with any of these challenges that we see coming up over and over again. But the problem that we run into is that our God did not put us into this world so that we could run away and hide in the woods. As much as I like grizzly bears, it is not our call to evangelize to them. No, we have been put in the world that we're in for a particular reason. And Peter begins to lay that out in this section of his letter. This begins, though, with a change in our hearts and a change in the way we relate to the world around us. So what does he say in verse 11? He begins by addressing the negative impact of worldly passions on us. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We need to understand. We need to have no illusions about the fact that the world around us is dying. 1 Peter 1.24 says it this way. It says, All flesh is like grass. 
and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so one of the challenges we face as Christians is making sure that our attitudes and our actions Our philosophies, our priorities are based on the priorities of God and not on the worldly priorities. Not on the passions that so easily distract us. See, very often, as we live in the world around us, we can confuse godly anger with worldly passion. I want you to just take a moment and think about the things that make you angry about the world around you. Very often, it's not sin. It's the fact that your team is losing. It's not anger, it's sin. It's the fact that your team is losing. See, we... As Christians, we're in control of the nation for the majority of its life. Our priorities were the nation's priorities, or at least the priorities that our nation said that it had. Our stamp, our colors were on the nation. And so when you talked about the United States, you talked about Christianity. And when we won, Christianity won. And so we tied our faith in with our nation. Well, that's changed. More than half of the country are uncomfortable with saying that we live in a Christian nation. The values of our government, our institutions, our media companies... Our corporations, all of them, are increasingly at odds with us. And it is only human to feel sad and upset and angry about it. Most of you are upset about Budweiser daring to have Dylan McIlvaney or Mulvaney or whatever his, her, she, whatever name is on the can. Even though most of us don't even like Bud Light. Either because we're really good Baptists or because it's really gross beer. That's right, I heard an amen back there. That's good. You can amen that. And yet, we're up in arms about it. Who cares? I don't care. But deep down, I sort of do care. Because the fact that this American company would do something as disgusting as they did makes me mad. So we have to be very, very careful that our worldly passions are not confused with godly sorrow at sin. See, Jesus spoke of the desires of the world and how they can choke the power of the gospel to change our lives. He describes the kinds of people that are weeds sown among the thorns. 
He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. See, as Christians, we have to resist the urge to preserve our lives. And we have to resist the urge to conform to the world. And we must resist the urges that drive us for power and winning and victory. As Jesus said, whoever loses, loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Our desire for the love and the respect of the people around us will ultimately come to frustration if we truly follow Christ. How do we know that? Because Jesus told us. He said, the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And if your goal is to be approved of by the people around you, to live out kind of a respectable life of niceness among the people around you, you will not be able to serve Jesus. Because Jesus is offensive to the world we live in. Jesus, and I want you to hear me, Jesus is not tolerant. He's not. Jesus is loving, but those are different things. Jesus' own words said that those who die outside of the Father will be cast into hell, where the worm doesn't die and the smoke goes up forever. That's not tolerance. He said the way is narrow and the doorway is small. There will be sheep and goats, and the sheep will be brought in, and the goats will be cast away. The weeds will be burned. This is not tolerant language. And if you build your life around the priorities of the world, the priorities of tolerance and acceptance, what's going to happen is you're going to fall away from the faith. You're not going to be able to stand firm on what God has said. And so Peter wants his audience to accept that Christians are the citizens of a different kind of kingdom and that our values should reflect the values of that kingdom and not the world we live in. Guys, if we're going to be faithful, I don't want to use the word successful as Christians because that's got a lot of connotations. If we're going to be faithful as Christians, we have to cast aside the passions of the world around us. That means that that we can't crave approval, but it also means that we can't crave winning. It means that we can't crave the world's approval and want to be accepted by everyone around us. Because if we do that, then we will cave on every issue that counts. 
If you want to be approved by the people around you, you will cave on abortion. You will cave on transgender rights and you will, cra- you will cave on gay marriage and you will cave on our responsibility to the poor and illegal immigrants. You will cave to people on the left and people on the right if you want to be approved. But there's a flip side of that too. If you crave victory and you crave power, then you will cave to those people who want to use you for political purposes. You will see that the job of the church is to support one party or another. You will become captive to the needs and the desires of people who don't actually care about Jesus or His kingdom. And so we have to be incredibly careful that the passions of the world don't dictate who we are. That's really, really hard. It requires that a person be transformed and that their mind be renewed and that we focus on Jesus and not on the wedge issues that the politicians around us want to use to divide us up into camps so that they can count our votes. We have to glorify God by casting aside the passions of the world that we live in. We need to understand that we glorify God in a dying world by living well. What does that mean? Well, Peter explains it to us. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Christian conduct should be honorable because our conduct should reflect the God that we serve. This is what Jesus said in the book of Matthew. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our actions are going to speak way louder than our words on what we actually believe. We can talk about serving a loving God and we can talk about serving a forgiving God and being forgiven, but if we're not loving and we're not forgiving, then we put the lie to everything that we said. If we say that we're supposed to love our enemies and then we hate our enemies, we put the lie to everything that Jesus said. Alexander McLaren said this, he said, The world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a second. You represent God and Christ to lost people. 
When they see you, you describe what God looks like. If you are hate-filled, angry, unforgiving, vengeful, that's how people see God. Parents, your children will see God through you. If you are overbearing and unforgiving, fault-finding, never pleased, that is how your children will see God. And many of them will run as far away from Him as they possibly can. That should scare us to death. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live godly lives, honorable lives among the people around us. Our neighbors should have no better neighbors than Christians. We should be better neighbors than the Mormons. Think about how good it is to have a Mormon neighbor. Be better than that. See, the people around Christians will speak out against them. However, the people who speak out against Christians should be put to shame when the Lord returns. So there's another element here. We are supposed to describe who God is, and we're also supposed to act out some of God's judgment. Now, I need you to understand this. This doesn't mean that we are the avenging force of God. You're not supposed to go out there and be God's hammer. Your job is to be the reason that the Gentiles are put to shame on the day of judgment. Okay? Your life should so reflect God that when God speaks to the lost, He can say, look, I was clearly displayed in these people. Did you not see my Christians? Why would you not want to be part of them? Look how amazing it is to be a Christian. Look how at peace they are and how much they love each other and how they forgive each other. Was this not clearly the antidote to the evils in the world? And yet I'm afraid right now that we don't look anything different from the world around us. I mean, ask yourselves that. Is there that much difference between us and the Lions Club? Or the Awanas? I mean, really, do we carry ourselves differently? Do we treat each other differently? Or are we just as backbiting and angry and bitter as the members of your neighborhood association? We represent God. And this community is supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't make God live in a hovel. Jesus was perfect and sinless, and yet he was crucified and murdered. And this was an indictment of Jewish culture. And so our good lives among the lost is supposed to be an indictment of a broken and dying culture. People should see a difference between the dying world outside and the life-filled, Christ-centered life of the church. 
Brothers and sisters, the world is dying around us and we have to glorify God by living well in this dying world. This means that every time you have the opportunity to act like the world, you need to take a moment. You need to stop. And you need to remember that you represent somebody other than yourselves. You don't live in a vacuum. It's not about you. You represent Christ. I want you to think about that, how, uh, like, so often the kids on the sports teams, you know, one of the adjustments that we had to make when we got to junior high, uh, Andy's on the football team there, some of you guys also have grandkids or kids that are on the sports teams, they dress up on game days, right? Like, they, dress, they look real nice, they wear like a tie and a shirt, and they do that because on game days, they want to be reminded that they're representing that program and the school, Right? I can remember when I was at AM in the Corps of Cadets, we would wear this uniform. This was many, many pounds ago, y'all. Many pounds ago. And, and, and I always remember you, you'd, you'd walk around in this uniform and you'd feel really cool about yourself until you saw somebody that was wearing the uniform acting like a total idiot. Either being stupid to the people around him and being cocky and mean. Or, or like eating an ice cream cone and dribbling the, the chocolate all down the front. I'm like, how am I supposed to pick up girls when you and I wear the same uniform? <laughs> Not that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but I was a young man. And yet how often do we do the same thing? Oh, brothers and sisters, when you leave this place, your actions among the people around you. Do they smell like Christ or do they smell like the world? Do you act any differently than the people around you? Not so you can earn your salvation, but so that you can represent well the one who saved you. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are called to live well in a dying age, and that means that we should act better than the people outside of the church. We should at least be as ethical as the people outside, but hopefully so much more. Finally, Peter gets to the heart of what he's talking about here, that living well means submitting to legitimate authority. Right living manifests as godly submission to earthly government. We are not rebels. We have freedom in Christ, but we don't have anarchy. And as our nation becomes increasingly hostile to us, we need to understand that sometimes we're going to have to submit to laws that we don't like. We're going to have to submit to people that we don't like. Y'all, I don't like the mayor of San Antonio, but I pray for him. And I submit to the rules that he made. You know why? Not because I agree with him. I don't think we should have a 
diversity, equity, and inclusion officer or an officer of LGBTQIA plus minus divided by sign rights in the city. But I'll submit to his leadership because God establishes authority. This is what... First Peter says, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as set by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Somewhere along the way, Christians in the United States have bought into this idea that we have the right to buck the government. That somehow, as a Christian, we're free to do whatever we want to, and that government is wrong. And I need you to understand this. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible's very clear. God establishes government. And I want you to understand this, unless you go down this road of saying, well, oh, he establishes good governments, but not bad governments. Those we can just ignore. Paul, Peter is saying this about a government that has imprisoned him and put him on trial for his life. He is saying that about a government that takes huge amounts of taxes from people and uses it to build pagan temples to demon gods. He's talking about a government that drags Christians out of their houses and makes them fight wild animals. And an emperor who claims to be God. And what does he say? He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor who claims to be God or to governors who steal your money because the institutions of government are established by God. We need to understand the nature of legitimate political power. All government is established by God. This is a creation ordinance and mandate. From the very beginning, God established that mankind was supposed to subdue the earth. It is good for us to subdue the earth, to establish order. That's what we're called to do. We're supposed to tend the garden. That's why work is good. It's why we have this drive to organize. Then, after, then it all goes down the drain, right? And we read that God says, all man did was evil all the time during the times of Noah. And so you know what God does? He kills everybody. Except Noah. And then he makes a covenant with Noah. And we all like kind of understand the covenant. We're like, oh, God said that he'd never destroy the earth again. And that he'd make there's a rainbow and it's beautiful. And there's like a double rainbow and it's amazing. And there's animals and little birds, and that's great. But we don't actually think about the covenant that, that God makes with Noah. This is what he says. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So man hasn't changed after the flood, right? The next story is the Tower of Babel. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. Okay, but there's a caveat to this. What does he say? He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. 
And I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds blood by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Government is not something that we can buck and run away from. It is something that is established by God for the establishment of justice. So that we can restrain the evil of the human heart. Government and laws are not a necessary evil that we can escape from. They are a tool that God uses. It is an element of His mercy so that we don't tear each other apart and become Lord of the Flies. Over and over and over again, we see this play out, right? Y'all remember back in, was it 2020 or 21? I don't remember. I blocked all that out. Remember when they had the free district in the middle of Portland? Wasn't that a magically peaceful place where everybody could just have drum circles and sing about how good the world was? No, it turned into an anarchic post-apocalyptic hell space. Because when you do, I mean... At the end of the day, when it was all said and done, you had crazy hippies with AR-15s patrolling the streets. Because otherwise, the place would tear itself apart. Anytime you remove law and order or government from a place, somebody's going to step in. You put, when the police pull out of a particular area, you know who establishes justice? The gangs. It's a different kind of justice. Better pay your taxes. You think the IRS is bad, you should see Cousin Pookie with a hammer. I mean, we we even see this when we go down to the homeless encampments. We were going down with Peggy. We visited this lady. She is the, what what, what does she call, what what, what do they call her, the camp mom? Yeah, she's the camp mom, which sounds really nice. Her job is to run off people that are causing trouble because they're all taking heroin. So she keeps the camp nice ish, as nice as a homeless encampment can be. There has to be law and order. Okay, It is something that is wired into us. Those who resist legitimate government are resisting God. This is what Paul says. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Governmental authority is a blessing established by God to restrain evil. We need to understand this because we live in a world that increasingly teaches us that the police and laws cause crime. Have you seen this? What we're going to do is we're going to decriminalize things and that make crime go away, right? If you make it not illegal or if you don't enforce laws, then crime goes down. What? But that's based on a philosophy that human beings are fundamentally good and that laws cause us to do evil things. That's not Christianity, y'all. Christianity teaches us that each of us are wicked and evil and we have to be constrained. That the wickedness in the human heart has to be tamed and it's tamed through law. Law and order are not oppression. They are blessings ordained by God for human flourishing. So listen to me. When that cop pulls you over, don't give him a hard time. 
When that police officer pulls you over, you're a Christian. You should be his, the, the easiest stop for him today. He shouldn't have to worry about you. As you start spouting off to him about you're a sovereign citizen or some garbage like that. Keep your hands in plain sight. Say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and give him your driver's license and registration. Pay your taxes. Now, take every legitimate advantage. <laughs> Contest him if you can, but pay him. Human beings thrive when evil is restrained, and the gospel thrives when there is order and justice. There's a reason that God planted the gospel in the middle of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Those bloodthirsty Roman soldiers that crucified Christ kept the roads open and kept the bandits at bay. So when evangelists went out, they could go from one place to the next without getting waylaid and killed. Brothers and sisters, we must glorify God by being good citizens and good neighbors. The final portion that he says here, verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance and foolishness of people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter's telling his listeners that their primary job is not to establish their own liberty. It's not about you being free. It's not about you living your best life. It's about you representing God well wherever you are. That means if you're in communist China, you be the best Chinese Christian you can be. If you live in Australia, you be the best Australian Christian you can be. If you live in America, you be the best American Christian you can be. And it means different things in different places. For us, it means being a good citizen. It means being involved in the community around you. See, it's really easy to scroll on Facebook and wring your hands when you don't go vote. You know what the voting, you know how many, what the percentage of the popula population voted in the last election? Anybody have a guess? We were voting for Proposition A, which was going to decriminalize everything and make it legal to do like $2,000 worth of graffiti. And we were all like, Proposition A is bad. No, don't vote for Proposition A. You know how many of us voted? 15%. This massive, life-changing law was decided by less than 20% of the population. Can you imagine what we could do in this city if all of the Christians voted? But that would require you to stop griping and get off the bench and do something. And that's hard. It's a lot easier to like something on Facebook and then get mad. Listen to me. Our job is to glorify God by being good citizens. That means voting in elections. It means getting to know candidates and issues. It means participating in your neighborhood associations. God help you all. <laughs> you need to be salt 
and light to the people around you. That means getting out of your house and getting to know your neighbors. It means engaging with people that scare you or that you don't like. But listen, the last thing that he says, he says, honor the emperor and fear God. Because let's be real. There are limits to our submission to authority. We're called to respect the government, but that respect is not unlimited. It's important for us to remember that we submit to the government authority in the Lord. Governments are established by God. They are not God. And governments will invariably and inherently seek to accrue all power to themselves. That is the nature of government. It's going to try to hoover up all of the existing power. Leaders are going to try to accrue more and more power. And so there comes times when Christians have to stand up and say, no, we're not going to do that. You can't make me not go to church. Put me in jail. It's stupid not to sing in church. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go tell other people about Jesus. Do whatever you want to me. There are times, brothers and sisters, as Christians, where we have to just live as Christians and accept the martyrdom that comes. See, when governments make themselves God, we do not and cannot comply. Peter is in prison because he will not comply with the emperor's demand that he be worshipped as God. We need to realize that submission doesn't mean surrender, but it might mean martyrdom. And so Jesus and Peter and James and Paul were all killed by the government. A government that they submitted to. Brothers and sisters, we glorify God when we submit to authority and we live quiet lives contributing to our society and loving our neighbors. And so Peter wants Christians to live as good citizens by submitting to the government in the fear of the Lord. And we're called to do the same thing. We are called to live well as citizens of a dying world. But that doesn't mean that we have to help it die. It's tempting when our nation does things we think are evil to throw up our hands and walk away. It's hard to get involved and yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to engage with the culture around us. But I need us to understand something. As Christians, so often, we involve ourselves most in the things that we have the least control over. And we ignore the low-hanging fruit that God's provided. Oh, I want to... I remember being at the Southern Baptist Convention, and every year we have this guy or want different guys that'll stand up and say, the Southern Baptist Convention needs to end abortion. I mean, we're a big organization, but we're not that big. How, 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 how do you think we would do that? Using our vast ability to legislate? There are things that we don't have control over, guys. I wish that I could fight the progressive left's control over academia. I can't. There are things that I have control over. I can control 
Who shares the gospel with the neighbors around me? I can share the testimony that I give to the people on my swim team. I can love and serve and care for the homeless people under the bridge. And so I would encourage you, rather than becoming angry and overwhelmed at the things that you can't control, pour your life out fixing the things that you can. Serve in the places that you can serve. Do more than just cultivate a sense of being done poorly by. And trust that at the end of the day, God is in control of all of it. The one incontrovertible fact of the world that we live in is that it is dying. It is passing away. Nothing that we build here will last. You know what will? The immortal souls of the people who come to know Jesus through our testimony. So let's spend our lives sharing eternal truths of the gospel that Jesus Christ loved us and died for us. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never accepted that truth as your own, your journey begins today. We're going to have a group of our deacons come up here to the front, and they're going to be prepared to pray with you, to help you understand what it means to give your life to Jesus, what it means to accept Him as your Lord and your Savior. Maybe you're not in need of that today. Maybe you've accepted Christ, but you've never joined a church or been baptized. Come forward and talk to one of our deacons. Maybe you just need somebody to pray for you. You're feeling broken and lost this morning. Come forward here to the altar. You can stay here all day if you want to. Or somebody can come and pray with you. I, I don't know where you are. But take advantage of the time that we have right now to give yourself and dedicate yourself to the Lord. Y'all pray with me. Dear Lord, God, we thank you that you have called us into this world to love you and serve you here. Lord, I ask that you would prepare us now for that service. God, that we would accept you as Lord and Savior, that we would turn to you and bond together with you. God, if there's any that, does, that don't know you here, Lord, that they would give their lives to you. Oh, Lord. God, we pray that you would transform lives here. If there's anyone that is hurting or broken, God, that you would come and heal them. Lord, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen.